Hey everyone, and welcome to episode 31 of the Strength Ratio Podcast. Today we have a great interview with James Hoffman, a sports performance consultant from Renaissance Periodization, who holds his PhD in sports physiology from East Tennessee State University. James uh, is someone who we really look up to in the sports performance and fitness industry and has written some of our best uh, and most favorite books, The Scientific Principles of Strength Training, How Much Should I Train, which covers the volume landmarks we go over in this episode, and then also recovering from training, how to manage fatigue and maximize performance. So without further ado, I'll let the episode begin and I hope you enjoy. Uh, the, the, the the storms come in around this time, so hopefully we don't get cut out. Uh, but yeah, we'll, we'll basically hop right in. living out that way, and you'd be just doing whatever you wanted to do, and you'd be hit by a microburst, or the weather would change, and you'd be like, what the hell? I remember a couple times I was driving around Johnson City, and a just microburst just dropped out of nowhere, and trees were getting uprooted, and I was in my car, and I was just like, Jesus, what is happening right now? My weather is crazy. Did you spend any time in Asheville or when you and Mike were in school? Uh, I don't know if there were any other people from RP who were in that graduating class with you uh, who, who made your way up here. Was there anything really going on in Asheville at the time besides? I mean, that was that was just our, our hangout spot, man. I can't tell you how much time I've spent at like Wicked Weed, um, places like that. I mean, like we would – that would because it's only like an hour, hour 15 maybe ish drive from Johnson City. So we would all go – I mean, Johnson City's fine and good, but Asheville was a lot more fun to hang out. So, I mean, everybody uh, at RP, like the – I don't know, 80% of them came from ETSU-ish uh, maybe. Maybe I'm overestimating. And most of us would go down there and hang out and, uh, you know, check out Blue Ridge Parkway, try and maybe shoot over to Grandfather Mountain. Do, we just do all that stuff. It was awesome. Yeah, it, it's a great spot. So – James, if, if you can speak to the audience about uh, the origins of the volume landmarks in the context of a competitive sports season, and perhaps at least at first, your general observations uh, when looking at your athletes uh, at ETSU and discovering that, okay, there's a finite amount that these athletes can be fueling and recovering and performing. How did these volume landmarks uh, make themselves present to you? Yeah, absolutely. So the volume landmarks is something that I think most people kind of intuitively understand on some level. Um, the problem for us was that we didn't have like the nomenclature and way to describe it in a way that made sense or was quantitative or even even qualitative for some people. So one of the things that, you know, we observed working in division one, and I'm sure you guys have seen the same thing is that a lot of coaches are, can I swear on this? Is that a swearing? Okay. Yeah, definitely. You know, a lot of coaches are just fucking stupid. And what we would see a lot of the times, and a lot of coaches are brilliant too, right? But a lot of them are also stupid. Um, but what we would see is like, okay, you have these players doing whatever, whether it's football, baseball, volleyball, doesn't matter. Right. And coach would have them do as much of practice or whatever it is that they could. And then they would read like a muscle and fitness magazine, be like, I'll tell you what, I need them to do that. They're Ryan Coleman routine. We're going to get on them weights. And they would just start adding things. Right. And then we would be like, whoa, 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 hold up. You can't just keep adding things. Right. There's some limit. And they'd be like, all right, well, now we're doing all this practice. Now we're doing all this weight training. I tell you what, we need to get these boys conditioned. And then they would have them running suicides or stairs. And, you know, and now all of a sudden you'd have a training schedule or excuse me, a training session planned your athletes would come in after running stairs for an hour or two 
And now they're supposed to be hitting, you know, three by threes at 90% effort. And it's like, dude, this isn't happening. There's no way that they're going to do this. They're totally wiped out. They have exceeded their ability to perform, right? And then they just see this pattern of like, we need to add more, add balance and stability training, add agility training, add speed training, add, you know, all this crazy stuff. And at some point we had to illustrate to the coaches, like, look, you can't just keep adding stuff resources is training resources time energy recovery are finite things you need to cultivate them and use them efficiently you can't just keep layering things on top at some point the athlete will start to break down and that can come from the peripheral side right where they start to get maybe like wear and tear overuse injuries or their performance just tanks on certain things and on the systemic side where they can start going into non-functional overreaching overtraining, and then their world just collapses right and we saw this all the time so we had to kind of like come up with a way to accurately describe the really, really complex dose response relationships with training. And this is something that has been around forever, but unfortunately it's a little, and this is not meant to sound condescending in any way, but it's a little bit mathy and a little bit sciencey for a lot of people to digest. It's a lot of like uh, reading uh, systematic reviews, meta-analyses where they look at dose and the outcomes of strength, hypertrophy, yada, yada, yada. It's all out there, but nobody really took the time to try and make it user-friendly. So I guess that's really what our goal was when we started coming up with these things. And the MRV, the maximum recovery volume, really was the easiest one to understand where we just say, look, there's an upper limit. You just can't keep adding stuff. If you could just keep adding stuff, you could just keep training and just keep getting better. And we wouldn't be having this conversation at all today, right? You could just keep going. That's not true. We know it's not true. We know it from science. We know it from experience, right? There's just some upper limit to what somebody can tolerate. And so that was kind of the starting point where we said, all right, at some point, our athlete is either going to break down or performance will go down to non-competitive levels, right? And that's really more of the issue for, for sport where we say, okay, they're so fatigued, they can't perform at their best or even, even competitively. And so that's kind of the big one. And then we started exploring the idea more and we said, okay, well, we have an upper limit. We also, if we have an upper limit, there's got to be a lower limit too, where we say, okay, well, there's only so much you can do, but there's some minimum amount of you, you need to do to get better. You can't just like not train because then you don't make any progress. So there's some minimum threshold of training you need to actually see measurable progress, right? And then the space between that is what we call the maximum adaptive volume, which is kind of our golden zone of training for most of the time. And then last and not least is the maintenance volume, which is becomes increasingly interesting. And I think it's going to come up more in our discussion today because it ends up being more useful is kind of what is the minimum training I need to not get worse, right? So there's some amount of training I need to do to not decondition. I can't just not train, right? At some point I'll start deconditioning. So we have to figure out, excuse me, I'm going to burp off to a good start. Um, I was waiting for that. <laughs> we're going to keep happening. Um, <laughs> it's, there's some minimum amount that I need to do, right. In order to not like have worse conditioning or worse strength or worse power or start losing muscle or any number of those things. Right. And that's really where we started to start fleshing these things out, start exploring different variables like training age, biological age, proximity to career peak, all that stuff. And that's kind of where we're, we're at now with our discussion on the volume landmarks. And it's really, really interesting. And what's kind of fun for me, and this is kind of selfish and stroking my own ego a little bit, but it's kind of fun when you introduce some terms into the world and then people start using them very like commonplace. Cause now every time you go on, people will say, Oh, are you doing your MAV, MRV? And it's like, that wasn't a thing up until a couple of years ago. You know what I mean? So uh, it is kind of fun to see people um, using that idea and now implementing it and, and actually reaping the benefit from it. So it's very fun for, for me to see that happening and to keep 
diving deeper into this idea and expanding upon it and doing new things with it. So that's really where it came from. It was a long time coming. Yeah, it's, it's really something that seems simple uh, and like you said, it's always been there, always around, just was never put together. But then it was also very complex and application depending on which sport or what your goal is as well. And it's just that. Uh, it's pretty, it's pretty awesome. You know, we it, joke, jokingly say in sports science, we do simple things for complex reasons. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And, and did you find, James, because you, you had worked uh, in varying capacities since graduate school with teams. Did you find that after you had at least recognized MRV, let's say, right, the easy one, so to speak, uh, were you looking for ways in which different teams varied in potential MRV? Did you look for varying ways in which individuals would vary? Because I know NCA regulations have increased the number of coaches relative to athletes, make it a little bit safer. Uh, but, but how did you go about making uh, those early observations sport to sport and perhaps just season to season when you would emphasize or de-emphasize training versus sport? Yes, that's a fantastic question. So there is a related issue, which might not seem to make sense at the moment, but it will come full circle. First off, you need to address the individual, right? You can look at things like dose response on population averages. And for the most part, that works pretty good. But at the end of the day, you still have to address the individual athlete, right? Even within the same sport, even the same position, right? So you might have a group of uh, running backs, you might have a group of rugby players or, you know, what uh, goalies, all of which are going to respond similarly, but yet different at the same time. So you always generally going to look at the individual level. This presents a huge problem when you work in strength conditioning, because you might be managing more than 10 teams, all of which have dozens, possibly upwards of a hundred people on it. So then you say, okay, you know, do you really expect me to do an individually tailored program for every single athlete that I'm monitoring right now? And then it's like, okay, that's a major practical limitation, right? Because most of us don't have enough time in the day to do that. Ideally, it would be great. So you can't do that. So really, one of the ways that you start funneling a lot of these ideas down is through the needs analysis that you make for your athlete, right? The needs analysis includes generalized information about the sport itself. So like what kind of activities are in the sport? How far do they run? Do they jump? Do they sprint? Is there a ball? Do they score? Is it uh, versus another team? Is it a, you know, an individual sport? All the things you need to know about that sport that makes it that sport. And then you also start breaking down the individual where you say, okay, what is their training age? What developmental milestones have they hit in the gym or on the pitch? You know, um, uh, for weightlifting, you can look at their totals or their individual lifts, right? Uh, for something like CrossFit, you can look at kind of the gold, the, the gold standard events that they might do like a Fran or a Murph and say, okay, am I competitive on these events? And if I'm not, where are the areas that I'm not competitive, right? Is it because I can't do the pull-ups? Is it because I can't do the X, Y, or Z, right? And so what we end up finding is the needs analysis really helps us start to narrow down what are the most important things I need to know about this sport? First of all, right? What are the fitness characteristics that help make people better at this sport? And then I can look at my individual athlete and say, all right, how does my individual stack up compared to their peers, right? Not necessarily, and certainly not against a, a dissimilar group, right? Like you can't take your high school quarterback and compare them to what uh, uh, somebody might be doing in the combine because it's going to be light years apart. It's completely different. But what are other people in that same division or high school, you know, age quarterbacks and 
in whatever the region, what are they doing? And is my athlete competitive? And then we can really, really start doing some cool stuff with prioritizing their training. And the way that we do that is by using the volume landmark. See, there it is. It came full circle. It took a little while. Um, but the way that we do that is we say, okay, there are some things that you're really great at. And maybe those are things that we can either cultivate further to make, uh, to lead towards mastery or potentially I might put those on the back burner. If you have any other glaring holes in your game, like if there's something that is just so abysmal that you're doing that it needs to be brought up immediately, I can put those things that you're good at on the back burner and not get worse while bringing up the things that you're bad at. Right. And I can do that in a very systematic way while managing all these different training resources. And so I think, um, this is where the discussion on things like concurrent training become increasingly interesting. So if you take a sport like a CrossFit, and I think you could even look at things like soccer, rugby, lacrosse, very, very similar problem, right? What are the things that make great CrossFitters, uh, great rugby players? Well, they share some commonalities, right? You need to be strong. You need to be powerful and explosive. But you also have to have a pretty high degree of intermittent endurance, or in the case of CrossFit, sometimes continuous endurance, Right. So now you have this conundrum where you're like, okay, I need to prioritize these certain fitness characteristics. But then at some point, I also need to train these other fitness characteristics like conditioning, for example. How can I possibly do that? Well, we know that we have the volume landmarks, right? So we have some constraints. We say, you know what? I know my athlete can do some amount of training from all of their sources, right? So if it's CrossFit, it's going to be all of the, the conditioning, all of the weightlifting training, all the general strength training, all the CrossFit specific training, all the techniques that you have to be able to do, like the jump rope, the wall ball, all that stuff. I have to be able to think about all of those things and integrate them into the program, right? I cannot possibly train all of those things at the same time. It's just not going to happen, right? So if you try to hit a minimum effective volume for every single little component in CrossFit, you're going to make it through half a session and you'll be done. It just can't be done. It's that simple. So we have to have kind of a priority or an emphasis, de-emphasis within our system. And the way that we do that is by using our maintenance volumes, minimum effective volumes, and our maximal adaptive volumes all within the constraints of the MRV. You see where I'm going with this? Sorry, I feel like I'm rambling like a crazy man. Just stop me if I'm, if I'm like going too nuts here. And, and, and if you can maybe perhaps, James, give an example to where in this emphasis, de-emphasis period, you are looking at all of these concurring uh, fitness, or at least in, in the examples you gave, these uh, fitness characteristics, uh, power, uh, strength, endurance, you are saying that you would emphasize or de-emphasize these fitness characteristics that come with different levels of fatigue and rates of decay. And in understanding that you can better uh, help the athlete achieve their goals on the field. Correct. Potentially, yeah. And some of, some of it does get very complicated where you have to look at rates of decay and stuff like that. But for the most part, um, it doesn't have to be that complicated and the needs analysis really, really helps narrow the focus. So let's look at something like really, uh, straightforward, like let's look at soccer, rugby, something like that, right? Okay. So we have their sport practice and they have techniques and stuff that they have to practice, which can include like passing, catching, you know, uh, any and all of that kind of thing. Then we also have within sport practice, their tactical component, right? They have to drill scenarios, gameplay scenarios, either against resistance or unopposed, sometimes full contact, sometimes non-contact, right? So you have all these different scenarios that you have to run. That's a big, big component of training. 
Now you can look at other things like fitness and you say, okay, but I also have to train for strength at some point. I also have to train for power at some point. I also have to make sure that their endurance is on point. And you go, okay, wow, that's a lot of stuff I got to manage. And then factor in other things like speed, agility, change of direction. And you're like, oh shit, this is just crazy. Well, how am I going to do this? Right? Well, the question is, do you need to do all of it? And what you find more often than not is no, you may not need to do all of those things. In fact, your athlete might be highly competitive or above competitive in many of those scores, which is great. And they may only really need to work on a few things to really get up to the level of competitive, excuse me, competitiveness that they need, right? So for example, if you have an athlete and you can show with your needs analysis, and this is through the testing and observations that you do throughout the year, let's say you have a guy or a girl and they can outmuscle anybody on the field, right? They are stronger and more powerful. They can break tackles. They can make tackles. They can ragdoll people around on the pitch, right? What's the big limiting factor to their game? Well, they can't make an entire match. A, so- a rugby match is 80 minutes. Soccer match is 90 minutes. And take that same person and they get through the first half and they are gone. Their gas tank is empty. So what's the biggest limiting factor to their performance? Is it strength? No. They're already really strong and really powerful. We've already established that either through testing or through observation. What do I need to work on? Well, I need to work on conditioning. So what's a really smart way to use your volume landmarks? Well, does that mean that you have to abandon your strength and power training? No, absolutely not. But what it does mean is you can move those things down to maintenance volumes, right? Which frees up a substantial amount of training resources to do other stuff, right? Which can include more conditioning or even more um, small-sided games for their practice to work on conditioning and practice at the same time. And you can imagine, right, if you went from doing, let's just say, 10 to 15 squats per week, because that's just what you normally did. Maybe, maybe you do more, maybe you do less. But let's just say that's the norm, right? And that's been doing, doing you well for a long time. What if you just went down to five sets of squats per week? What else could you do at that point? How much more energy? How, how fatigued would you feel if only doing five sets of squat per week? I would say, and you can try this for yourself, you would have a fuckload of energy, right? Because it's a lot less systemic fatigue. It's a lot less axial loading. And the movements, like the leg strength training movements, tend to wipe you out a lot. Like your, your weightlifting movements, your squatting and your deadlifting movements, those are usually the ones that come with a lot of peripheral and systemic fatigue. Could you then ramp up your training volumes in other areas like conditioning or sport practice, for example? Yes, absolutely. But you cannot do that without freeing up some of those training resources, right? So here's like, um, and please, please chime in if you have, if I'm, if I'm rambling, I'm going crazy over here. And sometimes with just the audio, I can't tell, like, because with the video, I can see people giving me the There's no, right? So, but here's the big constraint, right? Where you say, okay, I can only do so much training. If I was to only do strength training, I can do a shitload of strength training, right? That's awesome. Cause then my athlete's going to be more muscular, stronger, and hopefully more powerful from that. And then you say, okay, well, we need to add other things like conditioning. And then you say, okay, well now I can't just add conditioning, right? There's a couple constraints. The first is I just don't have the resources because I filled up all of my MRV with strength training. So if I want to add something, it has to come at the cost of something else. And so now we have this constraint where time spent doing the alternate modality, in this case, conditioning, comes at the cost of time spent strength training, right? Now you cannot be doing more strength training. You also come at the, uh, the potential cost of time not recovering from some of the strength training that you're doing because you're adding more stuff in, especially if frequency considerations aren't accounted for, right? And then 
On top of that, now you also have to deal with the interference effects associated with doing the concurrent style training, which is an inherent part of most sporting activities, right? So that's a lot of stuff that you got to manage, right? And unfortunately, you can't just blast both of those things. And now you look at it again and you say, okay, so I have some strength training. I have some conditioning. How do I add sport practice into that? Well, it's got to come at the expense of one or both of the other things. You can't simply add them. And that is where this idea of emphasis and de-emphasis comes in. Can I bring one of those things down to maintenance levels? Meaning, can I do some training and not get worse and then really ramp up the other ones like the strength or the conditioning to really make some marked improvements in those areas, right? And then that can shift around throughout your training cycle or your annual plan. And they can be uh, move around and reassessed over time. And then you might find like, man, we did like three mesos of cardio emphasis. We didn't lose any strength. And now cardio is not a big limiting factor going into the season. Now that same guy or girl who was uh, ragdolling people on the field has a bigger gas tank and they can stay out for the whole game, right? Does that mean that they have to keep doing cardio indefinitely for the rest of their athletic career? No, you just filled that hole in their game. Now they're competitive on, a le on that level. So that's kind of the idea. It's kind of a kind of a pain in that butt because you have to start putting numbers to all these things, right? It's easy to, to, to kind of shoot the shit and talk shop about it. But part of the burden of sports science is like, can I put numbers to this? How much should they be doing in either, you know, like minutes or efforts per week or per mesocycle? And that's where it gets a little tricky. And that's where the volume landmarks can become increasingly handy over time. Yeah. So uh, you actually just spoke it, uh, on it a little bit and hopefully I say this correctly, but my next question was going to be, how do we, how do we kind of start finding these numbers? Uh, and how do you know where if you have, I mean, I would imagine the best way to find them would be to do them in isolation, but obviously we can't, we can't do that if we have to get better at, at the sport. Um, uh, so how do we start knowing that, okay, it's not just, I'm not recovering now from my strength training, uh, cause I added this conditioning. How do, how much should I lower my conditioning to make sure I'm still recovering? Or how do I know that, uh, it's one or the other that's causing this kind of fatigue and, to occur. And to add to that, uh, sorry, James, not to lay this on too much is that, I'm excited for this answer because I think we know at least those who tune into RP and what Mike has to say, if you're looking at hypertrophy, at least in uh, most of his talking points, you have one variable, which is volume. And it seems like your, your note taking while it has to be diligent or your, your data tracking while it has to be diligent is, is fixed on one variable. Uh, is this more qualitative tracking or, or is it quantitative uh, when you have so many characteristics that you're playing with? Yeah, that's a great question. It's uh, it's actually both. It's, it's a little bit of both. So the problem that you run into when expanding from hypertrophy to sports, right? Hypertrophy is easy because the only thing that matters is essentially getting a ton of volume in at a very minimum threshold of intensity. And that's it. There's not really a lot of performance variables to look at. You're just looking at, is this person gaining and or maintaining muscle over time? That's the easy thing, right? Moving into sport, now you have a number of performance variables that you have to juggle. So the easiest way to start is the most, what I like to call the most ecologically valid circumstances. And so you asked, uh, do you do them in isolation? And if you wanted to get like a very good laboratory answer for like how much strength training can this guy tolerate or girl tolerate, that's how you would do it. Unfortunately, there's never a time throughout the year where you do that, right? And that's the big limitation. So you want to do it generally under very normal conditions. And for most athletes, they're going to have a little bit of a blend, maybe not an entire holistic blend, but they're going to have a blend of activities that they're working on. And that's very normal. So when you're trying to figure out things like MRV, 
you want to do it in a predictable and repeatable way. So if they if they do conditioning and strength and you know wads and metcons throughout the week, that's a great time to start looking at these things. You don't have to do anything different. The biggest indice that you can look at is usually performance. And that can be measured a number of different ways, right? So if you're looking at strength training, you can look at the weight on the bar or the number of reps they're getting per the same amount of weight. So for example, are they hitting strength PRs, right? Or is their strength actually going down? Meaning is the number that they're getting going down or the reps that they're getting going down? That should be an immediate red flag that they're probably uh, teetering on overreaching, maybe already there, right? You can look at other things. How fast are they moving? So there are some activities where speed is king, right? What we need is speed uh, from Rocky. So you would have to actually be able to measure that, whether it's using like a timing gate in a sprint or using like an accelerometer or something like that on the bar or do whatever they're doing. If you can measure and say, you know what, this person is slowing down beyond what is acceptable. Maybe you've decided that 80% of maximal movement speed is what I need. They drop below 80% and you say, you know what, this is no longer overloading for speed or power, right? Because the performance is going down. Now I can't actually train an overload speed and power because my performance is so low already. Same idea. You can look at things like uh, for conditioning, if it's more continuous exercise, you can kind of look at like a time trial style things like time to completion or total distance covered. You can also look at things like average pace, right? And that can be for the continuous effort or for the, if you're doing like more hit style stuff, you can look at what was the, the average pace of the high intensity efforts, things like that. So performance is usually one of the best ones to look at period. Why? Because it's going to be one of the most sensitive things to the effects of fatigue. Why is that? Well, fatigue is going to mask your fitness in certain things. Well, in everything eventually, but some things are more sensitive than others. And it's going to start directly affecting things like your technique, your ability to move quickly and your ability to make good decisions. So if you're looking at other sports, you can look at not only like their fitness performance, like how fast they run, how much they lift. You can also start looking at their gameplay statistics, right? Like you, you can say like, okay, I know this guy usually scores 10 points per game. The last two or three games in a row, they've been getting like three points per game. That would be an indicator that either they're getting worse at the sport, which is less likely, or maybe they're just carrying around a lot of fatigue and maybe you actually exceeded their MRV at some point. And at that point, you would want to go back and look at what you had done in the previous weeks and then adjust for the next mesocycle. So usually performance measures, whether they're like game stats or fitness measurements, are usually the gold standard that we want to use. We can also look at physiological markers, things like heart rate, like resting heart rate, heart rate variability. And if you want to get real fancy, you can look at things like uh, cortisol to testosterone ratios. Um, Cell-free DNA has been proposed. I don't think that one's that good. And you can even look at things like blood CK levels. So there are physiological markers that are associated with uh, overreaching that we can look at. And there's also psychological markers. And uh, although you know perceptive ones aren't always the most reliable, Typically, what we find is that when people are starting to feel the adverse effects of fatigue and kind of teetering into overreaching, some very predictable things happen. They start having sleep disturbances, their anxiety goes up, and um, they start to have feelings of helplessness. And this is something I think, I'm sure you guys have experienced this, but if you have ever really trained balls to the wall and truly overreached, you just get to a point where you're just like, my life is fucked. And nothing, nothing matters. Like everything sucks. I suck. I don't even know why I'm doing this, right? That is completely predictable and indicative of, not, I don't want to say overtraining, but overreaching. So usually 
if you want to be a real anal sports scientist like your boy here, you would want to see th- uh, one of each of those three. So you would want to see performance going down consistently. You would want to have some type of physiological marker showing something bad is happening. And you would want to have a perceptive marker showing that the way they feel about their current situation is not positive. If you can show all three of those things, you can definitively say, you know, my athlete's probably pretty fucked right now. And then what you would want to do is go back and look at all the different things that you did, right? You say, okay, well, we spent this many minutes this week doing conditioning. We did this volume of weight training. We did, you know, five by tens or whatever. And then you can go back on the next mesocycle and turn it down a little bit, right? And then continue monitoring performance. And you might ramp it down a little bit and find not only do they start feeling better right away, but they actually start seeing progress again. Now their numbers are starting to go up. Now they're getting either more reps or more weight, or their technique doesn't look as sloppy, or their gameplay performance is back up to usual, maybe even getting better. That's kind of the stuff that we want to look at. Now, the, the, I, I'm sure you're probably thinking like, okay, well, I don't have all the fucking time in the day, bro. I can't just sit there and analyze every game. I can't run fitness testing all the time. How do I narrow all this stuff down? Again, we go back to that first thing is the needs analysis. What are the things that are the most indicative of success in the sport? And this is stuff you can look up, right? So for field sports, um, you don't need to know what their top running speed is. Probably one of the most indicative things is their short sprint uh, uh, time trials, things like less than 20 meters, uh, less than 40 meters, right? Can you measure that with a stopwatch? Yeah, really easy. If you have timing gates, even better, right? Something like that. Uh, things that you're doing in the gym, right? Do you need to have them do one RM testing or maximal isometric testing to see if their strength is going up or down? No, you already got their training program. All you got to do is write that stuff down in a notebook or on an Excel sheet and you can see for yourself. Are their numbers generally going up over time or are they going down or staying the same? Stuff like that. So it doesn't have to be this elaborate, crazy lab coat, you know, nerd situation. It can be that. And that's cool too. But for most of us, there's probably a happy median where you find the things that matter the most to the sport, right? And they can be performance and physiological variables. And you monitor those things over time. If they start going down consistently, right? You are probably doing a little bit too much. Unless you're really on the low side, you might be like, there's no way that this, this low amount of training can be, cause them to overreaching. If that's the case, then it's probably too little. They might need to actually just do more. And uh, that's something we, we wrote a book we call it, it's called recovering from training. And one of the big take homes in that book was the volume landmarks is kind of this big choke point for a lot of sports where you say, okay, training over my MRV, there's nothing, there's no fancy hot tub or ice bath or, you know, recovery drink that you can take to fix that, that you're fucked. If you train over your MRV, you can't fix that. Right. But if you're training below your MEV, there's no need to look at alternative recovery modalities because, you're just not training enough. The limiting factor to you getting better is not recovery. It's just, you're not doing enough training. So that's kind of why we put so much importance on this because that really just puts you right in the middle of good training. And then it's very easy to manipulate some of those things once you're in that golden zone. And so again, I'm rambling here. Right. So you got me on this topic that I like so much. And now I feel like I'm being a, Oh, it's awesome. It's been great. So you, so you, you get them into that golden zone, right? Where you have them in their normal setting, right? You're not trying to just look at only how many snatches they can do per week, right? Because if you just spent a whole mesocycle trying to figure out what's the MRV for snatches, you just wasted that mesocycle because now their clean and jerk is deconditioning, right? And there's never a time when they're only going to do snatches in their training ever. So it doesn't make sense. So realistically, you're looking at, okay, what is the total volume load 
of combined weight tra- weightlifting specific training and the general strength training associated with that, that this person can tolerate before things like they start moving slow, their performance in the snatch and clean and jerk goes down, or their technique really becomes inconsistent and starts to break down. That would be a really easy thing to look at, right? For CrossFit, it would be like their uh, their event specific stuff. Like you could look at uh, their Fran times or how much, you know, their pull-ups, um, uh, double unders, all that kind of stuff. And those are really things that they're already doing. They're going to be doing that anyway. All you got to do at that point is just write it down and monitor it. So that's kind of the... The beauty of this is there are practical limitations in terms of how much and overwhelming the data collection can be, but at the same time, you can do some really easy stuff and get virtually the same effect. Yeah, I think the uh, the recovery thing you mentioned there is so big because people are so quick to um, think that they need some external um, uh, piece of equipment or massage or supplement or something, and that's the reason they're not recovering. You, as don't, a- you don't even have to train. You can just yeah, yeah. You can use those things. Um, and, and as opposed to looking at, uh, maybe, okay, what are they doing in training? And maybe it's cause we're, we're more, we work with quite a few CrossFitters and that's more of our, um, I don't know, population, uh, outside of weightlifting and powerlifting is that they're very quick to do those things and not maybe looking that they're doing high intensity intervals every day. <laughs> and if I can, uh, if I can ask James, I've heard you say that you'll take it because right when athletes are and it, as you've mentioned, it is finite. The performance, the recovery, it, 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 time is really what we're all working with. Um, when you are working hard uh, on the pitch or, or in the gym, you do have to have that concerted recovery time. And, and let's just say we discuss for a second the modalities which we know due to uh, literature that contradicts what was quite popular, say, five, six, seven years ago. Um, I've heard you say in the instance of foam rolling or um, stretching or lacrosse balls, let's just take those examples, that you'll sometimes program that in to achieve a greater relaxation effect. Uh, if I if I have that right, I'd, I'd love to hear you talk about that more and, and maybe if there is this placebo when it comes to recovery that we now know of, um, is that ethically sound? Is this kind of part of the art of coaching? How do you perceive that? Ooh, yes, you beat me to it. So there's a couple things, right? You can look at any number of those individual things. So first of all, you know, I, I think you and I can both agree that foam rolling is not relaxing at all if you're doing it properly, right? It sucks. Um, so there's a few things um, – you can look, so I guess I, I should probably break those down individually. So let's start with the, the first one, foam rolling, right? Is there a, a measurable effect of recovery from doing like self-myofascial release type activities? Generally, no, it's not measurable. Is it uh, a relaxing activity? We already said no. Are there potential therapeutic uses for it? Sure, right? Absolutely. So it will grant you some temporary flexibility and mobility characteristics, which can help you train uh, with better technique or with a fuller range of motion. And so that's cool, but that's just an independent thing, right? So it's just on its own. It's not in the the context of recovery because it doesn't do anything for recovery. It just has its own like kind of therapeutic benefit. But there's plenty other things where you see a similar relationship like um, light stretching uh, and uh, like massage, right? What we find a lot of the times is that they don't really seem to have any direct effects or any effects that we can measurably distinct uh, d- differentiate from just doing relaxation. And what we found in our kind of review of the literature is 
goddamn relaxation seems to be like the biggest confounder to almost all of this stuff. So is it uh, unethical to program something for your athlete? Let's say like doing some hippy dippy shit, like doing Kumbaya with your friends where you get guitars and like smoke weed and light the patchouli up. Is it unethical outside of legal issues to do that? Well, on one, on the one hand, right. It's like, okay, you're, you're telling them to do something, you know, doesn't have a direct effect, but at the same time, it's getting them to do what you want, which is relax. So I would say there's a, there's a balance to strike between there. And I can tell you, uh, from experience, uh, not necessarily myself specifically, but from observing other sports scientists, you can go around the world and tell everybody that what they're doing is wrong and stupid. But I can promise you, you're not going to make very many friends and it only causes them to push back against you and rally and dig deeper, double down, right? So you say, hey, massage is stupid and you're stupid for doing it. They're like, fuck you, I'm going to do more massage now, right? It doesn't help anybody, right? So here's the thing, right? Like if you're working with somebody and they're like, you know, I've been, I've been doing massage three times a week and you're like, wow, that's a huge waste of time and money. If you confront that person with that, you are going to not only just, you know, ruin some of your rapport with them, but you're also going to blow up their world in a sense, right? They've been doing this forever. They think it's efficacious, whether it's placebo or not, it doesn't matter. They've been doing it and they think it works, right? Now, you're telling them it's wrong. And now they're going to start questioning everything that they're doing. They're going to resent you at least temporarily. And it's just going to be a big mind fuck for them. So what I generally recommend is that's where the art of coaching comes in, right? There is a science to training and we can look at these things and say, is this effective or not? Or is it contextual? But at the end of the day, what do you want? What's one of the things you need to get your athletes to do? Relax, sit the fuck down, have a meal and get into like basically your resting kind of uh, conditions, right? If doing something like massage will get them to do that when they otherwise will not, why not? Who cares? You can sit on your physiology high horse and be like, that's dumb, but that's just going to take, that horse is going to take you to the unemployment line. You know what I'm saying? So it's just one of those things where um, you don't, you don't want to sit in like the ivory science tower and just, and just be judgmental about these things, right? If it's getting you what you want. Go ahead and let them do it. I don't see a big problem with that. If you have a client or somebody that you're working with and they want a, a serious conversation with you and they say, hey, I've been doing this. Do you think it's worth your time? Then you can be like, hey, you know, here's kind of what the research shows on this. Maybe it's not worth as much of your time as you're, you're putting into it. But if you still enjoy it and you still feel like you get something out of it, keep going, right? Placebo is a, a motherfucker. Placebo gets people to do all sorts of crazy stuff. So there's no need to necessarily take it away unless that time could be better spent, uh, significantly better spent doing something else. You know what I mean? Like it's, you'd be hard pressed to say like, don't go to massage anymore because it's stupid. Why? Well, it's like, what else are you going to do? And that gets them to relax. So I don't know. And we've seen that firsthand because we've been able to use the volume landmarks to help people resolve years of chronic pain and when you have that in one corner and you have this advocacy for relaxation which people seem to have a very hard time to do if you don't label it as some kind of activity or even a product uh, we've learned firsthand uh, the the power of the kickback effect especially when it comes to trust and and, and building that relationship with someone who's looking to uh, you know resolve pains or, or overcome uh, performance plateaus. So I, I think the fact that you're chasing relaxation and however you can best to ensure that it happens, 
as kind of priority number one to me makes total sense. Uh, one, one question that I have along these lines, James, is when, let's say back to when you were working with uh, your collegiate population, was this of strong consideration uh, in conjunction with how you would factor in the volume landmarks around more stressful times for students, namely like midterms or finals? Uh, with our, our general population, it can be a bit more sporadic, but it seems like with students, it could be both a blessing and a curse in that you know when it's coming, but it, it could also potentially conflict with when you need them to be performing, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, that's a conundrum because you know it, it, we like to look at it from the pure sport performance perspective where we say the only times that matter are when you're competing. Everything is built around that, right? It would be unrealistic, though, to say that lifestyle does not play a role in managing performance and training volumes, right? That would be ludicrous for me to say lifestyle doesn't matter. It would be just bananas. So um, did we try to factor in exam schedules and stuff like that? No. At the same time, that is something that the athlete has to be diligent about on their own. So we can only program realistically what's best around their competitions. And they have to be on their shit, right? They can't just like blow off all their midterms and exams and then stress themselves out because they were ill-prepared for those things. Then they're going to see the negative side effects. So part of it was, um, you know, it's, it's coaching is not only for sport, but sometimes it's like being a dad and being a lifestyle person where you're saying like, look, if you don't want to shit the bed midway through the semester when midterms roll around, stay on top of your game and you'll be able to manage it much better. Now, when you're working with um, non-students, right, uh, it's a little bit easier because those things don't tend to pop up as as consistently. Where you, and then you, you can adjust, right, where you say like, and I, I do this all the time with my clients and they're not necessarily athletes. They're just training to look good naked, which is fine. Um, they'll be like, oh, I want to do this cut diet. But, you know, like my mom died and my, my dogs just had puppies and my son is like, uh, I'm having a fallout with my son and this other stuff. I'm like, why do you want to cut right now? You can just do maintenance. You can just cruise for a little bit until your shit calms down. And, and shit happens, right? Shit, it's, it's going to happen. That's life. Life is a series of like unfortunate stressors that you have to manage throughout the rest of your life. And that's just, it's just how it is. So it's inevitable. Things are going to come up. Don't try and plan the most brutal and rigorous training and dieting stuff during those times if you can avoid it. And I've had, and I, I you know, I have a client right now who their situation, uh, unfortunately, was that their, their child died of cancer. And I said, done, moving into maintenance diet, moving into maintenance training. There is no way in the world that any of us can try and mass or cut or expect to hit like lifetime PRs when something that devastating is happening in your life. It's not going to happen. You can try and force it all you want. It's just going to ruin your life and your training. So absolutely in those cases, you would tone it down and you would use the volume landmarks again and say, you know what, whatever it is you're doing, we're going down the maintenance volumes and I'm just going to free up an incredible amount of recovery time for you until your lifestyle stressors calm down. And then you are physically and mentally ready to get back to the grind again. But people try and push it all the time. I'm sure you guys deal with this all the time where they're like, oh, yeah, I'm working 80 hours at work per week, but I still want to do that, that competition this weekend. And you're like, why? Why? Who cares? It's just a fucking gym meet. Like, you're, there's going to be another one in a month. Who cares? Don't do it. You know, it's crazy. But it's something that you can manage for those people. For students, it's not something we did as much. It was more along the lines of like, okay, 
We're not going to program your training around you being a derelict in your life. You know what I mean? It was like, you need to like be on your shit and do a good job. So it doesn't come back to bite you later. Uh, yeah. Wow. That was, that was really, that was really good. Uh, what I would like to go next, James, is kind of how you would apply uh, these. And you talked about it a little bit with emphasis and de-emphasis, but across the year and the different phases of training and periodization. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, each sport is slightly different, but the 90% of sports follow a very, and this is, this is very generalized, but they follow kind of a similar idea where in the early general preparatory periods, you're kind of working on things like building big base of work capacity and muscle mass that you're going to carry you throughout the season. Right. And at some point you start transitioning into more strength, kind of like generalized strength stuff. At some point you start transitioning into your maximal strength and power stuff. This is usually in the specific preparatory periods. And then you start transitioning into your really, really highly sport specific stuff where you're mainly focused on doing your sporting activities and that takes up the big bulk of your training. So we can start looking at this a little bit more quantitatively, right? We can look at fitness characteristics and volume landmarks and we can say, all right, what's the MRV for doing work capacity training? Well, turns out it's really, really high, but it's not the same across all fitness measures. And so we know that if you do the same volume of training it will, uh, uh, for work capacity and hypertrophy, it will directly start to inhibit your ability to express things like strength, power, speed, and even uh, endurance in some cases. So what do we know? Well, we know that the MRVs for those things are different. So as we transition across our training cycle or annual plan, we know that from work capacity and hypertrophy, there has to be a reduction in volume when we get to things like strength or power, simply because the MRV for those fitness characteristics is lower. And so kind of what we were talking about before, most people intuitively know that as you move from general prep towards competition, the volume goes down and the intensity goes up. This is largely one of the reasons why, simply because the volume of training that uh, will actually start to inhibit your ability to express fitness. It will remain dormant. It'll be hidden there, but it will never come out, right? So it's not that you're deconditioning. It's just that you won't be able to show off. It's just hiding because you have too much fatigue. And so what we see is, okay, we have to reduce it for strength. It turns out we have to reduce it for power. It turns out we have to reduce it for speed as well. So even just from the strength training alone, we can see a trend in the volume landmarks changing across the sports season. Now you factor in other things like your sporting competition, right? So when you're in the, in the general preparatory periods, most of the time you're going to be spending uh, working on any major technique or kind of just fundamental sporting stuff. Like most of the basics, fundamentals, techniques that you need to be good at for your sport and maybe a little bit of tactics. So what we would see is something like tactics being down to maintenance volumes, which frankly, can be as low as even thinking about the game, watching uh, a video, doing chalk talk, or maybe just running a couple scenarios every week, that might be enough to actually maintain your tactical abilities. And then you're going to be freeing up quite a bit of time to be working on techniques and fitness training, right? And then at some point, we say, okay, we're kind of moving out of the general prep. We know that our fitness MRVs are going to start going down. So the training volume has to go down, but we're also going to start doing more sport specific stuff, which generally involves more high intensity efforts, more live play, more contacts, more hits, stuff like that. So we know that that's going to add a ton of fatigue. So when tactics goes up, that's going to fill up a big chunk of our MRV. So that has to come at the cost of something else. So we already said, you know what, as I start training my tactics, I'm probably going to have to transition to power speed. I'm going to start bringing my strength training down substantially so that my tactics can come up and sorry, I'm burping. I'm probably going to have to start bringing down some of the direct like technique and fundamentals that I'm doing 
to make room for more scrimmaging and live play. And then once you get kind of towards the in-season times, really everything but tactics goes to maintenance volumes where you're saying, essentially, I don't want to get any weaker or any less powerful or less uh, um, uh, enduring. And I don't want to decondition any of my skills, but I need to spend as much time essentially doing my sport as I can tolerate, right? And so in some cases, that might even mean bringing your tactics down to maintenance volume, which sounds kind of funny, but here's a scenario, right? Hockey and basketball, horrifically long seasons. Uh, and sometimes they play four, maybe even like five games per week, right? How much scrimmaging can you realistically do when you have to perform four times per week? Not much. So that might be an example of a situation where you're in season, you bring your fitness training down to maintenance volumes, you bring your technical kind of fundamental skill training down to maintenance volumes. And at some point you might even bring your tactics down to essentially maintenance volumes, meaning doing just enough to not get worse so that you can free up lots and lots of fatigue so that they can perform high on every single match. Other sports, you don't have that problem, right? Where like rugby, for example, you play once uh, per week, not even every week. So you might not have to bring tactics down to quite that level. And you might have people doing live scrimmaging a couple times per week leading up into games simply because they only have one game that they're training for. But that would be the kind of the idea here, right? Where it's like, there are times throughout the year where certain things are emphasized, like in the general prep period, fitness training is generally emphasized. And so you pick the fitness things that you're working on, you move them up to MAVs, you move other things like tactics down to MVs, and then any skills that you're not really working on or don't really need a whole lot of improvement, move to MVs. And then we see that shifting around as we move closer to competition where we say, okay, now I'm really ramping up my sports specific fitness, ramping down the general kind of general strength, general work capacity, general endurance that goes down to maintenance volume essentially and ramping up things like power, speed, and my tactics, right? And the cool thing about it is when you really look at it, if you look at something like small-sided games, for example, in sport, which is which is basically doing live play sport with, you know, a constriction of like, you can't do this technique or the field size is modified or you can't move this way. What they have found is that that gives you an almost identical response to not only your speed and power output, but also your metabolic related stuff. So your conditioning stuff, and you get the benefit of practicing your sports skills and techniques at the same time. So when you ramp up the tactics, what you actually find is that that can cover the maintenance volumes of things like conditioning, speed, skills, and a whole bunch of other stuff just from actually going out there and playing your sport, which makes it a very economical use of your time. Now, that's not always true, but it can be true in many circumstances. So that's where it like kind of gets fun, where you get to really start playing around with this stuff and you kind of give it the like red light, green light, yellow light kind of system where you're like, okay, I'm, I'm kind of working on this, but not a ton. I'm really working hard on this and I'm not really working very much on this. And that's kind of how you would go through the annual plan and say, okay, here's this fitness, here's this technique, here's this tactic, here's how I'm modifying it. Uh, so when you've, and I think that was a, a brilliant explanation and, and answered a lot of my questions. I found uh, very fascinating the, the shortening of the, the, either the length or the field size. I hadn't heard that before. Um, but in your observation, direct observation, and now as RP uh, has grown tremendously, have you seen uh, this happen where, when athletes progress from, or at least the select few who do, from collegiate athletics to professional athletics, that this becomes much more of a challenge when there are, say, and this might not uh, 
appeal directly to our, our audience, but I think it speaks to how the volume landmarks can kind of guide the path for this in the future. But there's this increased sensitivity towards pushing professional athletes due to fear of salaries being on the line and the what if people get injured. Yeah. So there is a big hurdle there because at some point, some people buy into this idea of training to not get injured, whether they think of it that way or not. Right. But the way I think of training is you're training to get better. And at the very least training, not to get worse, but more often than not training to get better. So you can be hyper conservative. And as people move into higher levels of development and into higher levels of competition, the risk of injury is no is not necessarily greater, but it is more devastating in the sense that oftentimes it's tied to finance, right? Where it's like, okay, now if I get hurt, I'm not getting paid, right? Whereas before it was like, ah, but you know, I still had my scholarship, I could play the next season, right? Now it's like, oh man, I might actually get dropped if I get hurt. And so that is realistic. So it does come up. I mean, it is something that we have to illustrate with them. The problem that we see kind of as people transition into semi and professional athletics is that they often have a lot of cooks in the kitchen, if you know what I mean, where they're getting training advice from numerous sources, right? They might have their own private strength conditioning coach that they hire. They might still do the team stuff. They might be working with the physical therapist or an athletic trainer and doing all this other stuff. And the problem lies is that those efforts are not always coordinated. And this is something that I've experienced, and I'm sure you guys have too, where you just say like, okay, here's what we're doing. And they'll say like, oh, but I'm working with so-and-so and they say not to do it. And they're like, well, pfft pick one, buddy. I don't know what to tell you. And that happens with us a lot of the times, especially with CrossFit. CrossFit's actually a really good example of this where we'll say, hey, you know, if you want to get bigger and stronger, you need to temporarily put some of your CrossFit stuff at maintenance volumes. And you might just need to do some like real gnarly hypertrophy or strength training for a little bit. And that will help bring you up in some of your lagging areas. And then you can go back to doing your normal routine later. And there's so much pushback because of the fear of not only deconditioning, but like you said, injury, like I can't do, you know, six sets of squats in a session because my knees and it's like, well, yeah, you can do it. You just are afraid to do it. And at that point, you're not training to get better. You're training to not get hurt. And so uh, there is a golden zone, right? So like you can't be hyper conservative or hyper aggressive with these things. And that's why that again, that's kind of the idea of the volume landmarks where it's like you, there's some minimum amount you need to do and some maximum amount that you can tolerate. If you're in between those things, you're probably in a good spot. But if you're doing so little, like, like, uh, like when you talked with Mike about people who train between MV and MEV, that's just the dead zone. You're not really making any progress and you won't get hurt doing that. And that's great, but you never will make any progress either. So I think probably the biggest challenge in that context is probably with CrossFit because they feel like if they're not hitting the Metcons, not hitting the wads, that um, they're going to be missing out on something. And what we are basically trying to tell them is like, hey, you can still do a couple wads or a couple Metcons per week. You won't get any worse, at least in, in a long-term sense. Um, and if you did like some real serious hypertrophy training, now you'll be more muscular and that will potentiate gains in strength and power later on. So when you have to do the deadlift ladder, you won't get fucking crushed in the first round next time. Right. And that is a, uh, it's a hurdle for a lot of people, but when you do get them on your side, what's the first thing that happens, right? You have them do a mass, mass, uh, training for two to three mesos. First thing that happens, they're like, oh man, I just PR'd on my snatch by 10 kilos. And you're like, well, pfft, how about that? You hadn't even really done much snatching uh, up until this point. Why? Just because they got more muscular, right? Just because they hadn't really done a lot of uh, fundamental training. And this is not a knock on CrossFit at all, but I think a lot of people 
get into CrossFit as one of their first fitness experiences, having not spent a lot of time just doing nuts and bolts stuff in the gym. You know what I mean? Um, then they say, well, if I'm not doing all this crazy stuff, well, how am I going to get better? It's like, homie, you're like 135 pounds, right? Let's get you up to like 165 and you're going to be a stud, right? At, at 165 comparatively, just because you'll be stronger and you'll have more muscle and probably less injury prone at that point too. So it's, it's, that is a hurdle. It's definitely a struggle. And so, you know, it's, um, one thing to be careful of again is not like sitting in the science tower and being like, your coach is fucking stupid, bro. What's that going to get you? Nothing. That's just going to get, they're going to double down and be like, you know what? Later, I don't like what you have to say because you're insulting the people that are close to me and, and possibly me as well. So um, it's better when everyone's coordinated and on the same page where if you can get the, the coach involved and say, hey, CrossFit coach, you know, like I think this would really, we can show like, hey, their numbers uh, are really limited by their strength. And one of the easiest ways to potentiate strength gains is gaining some muscle. Here's what the, here's the plan. Can we get on the same page here? And more often than not, the answer is yes. I have had some instances with some MMA fighters where the answer was no. And, uh, and at that point, you know, like my rapport was less than the, than the one they already had with their coach. And so at that point you sit on the back burner, right? What are you going to do? Force them to do it? No, it just makes you look bad. So it comes up a lot. I think one of the, the coolest things, especially uh, with CrossFitters, is when they do go back to the, some of the more of Metcons or conditioning, is they're just as good, if not better, than they previously were. And they're like, oh, my God, it worked. <laughs> yeah, right? It's crazy. Yeah. And like that's, that's the idea of this whole emphasis to emphasis, right? Like all you need to do is some maintenance volume of your snatch and clean and jerk. And it's not much, right? How much snatch and clean and jerk do you need to get better? A substantial amount, Right. How much do you need to not get worse? Not much, right? And that frees up so much. Like your knees and your back won't be so beat up. And now you can do more leg pressing or more squats or whatever and get stronger. And, or It doesn't have to be that, but it could be anything. And that's just a really simple example. Um, one of the things that we've done too is we'll run CrossFitters through a full like mass cut cycle where they'll gain weight for three mesos and then we'll drop the weight back off after three mesos. Not only will they be hitting just like all-time strength PRs, but then their gymnastics stuff goes up because now they are stronger at basically what was the same body weight before. Now they're just more muscular. Now they can do more muscle ups or you know more handstand push ups, stuff like that. So it's it's really fun to see when it comes full circle. So and I'm going to bring this back full circle to the needs analysis. Is that I think it is very important to come back to that needs analysis because ultimately, like you said. You're wanting to all work in concert. You don't want any kickback so that if you can tell the athletes, I, you know, I'm on your team. I want you to be the best that you can be. Here's your needs analysis. Here's how we get there. It might involve some meeting of, of terms. You know, maybe there's like a, a CrossFit-like finisher that you know won't tap into the next session uh, or you play to the psychology in, in, in some way, shape, or form, but this just reminds me, and, and I think I'll revisit this with the next few programs that I write tomorrow, is the athlete's needs analysis and reminding them if they're ever doubtful that it's not just kind of like my stake in this or my opinion to defend. It's, it's are we getting them to where they want to go? And, and having that needs analysis to start seems to lay the foundation for the volume landmarks and for the rest of the season. So I, I think that it's a really good 100%. way to even just kick this all off. So. Uh, yeah. And 
you know, and it's not to say too, like you would come in with like a needs analysis and say like, here's some numbers, right? Like here's some, here's some math that I did for us. Right. And then you, you pitch it to the coach and you say like, what do you think? Like, what were your observations? What was your, what does your coach's eye tell us? Does it align with these numbers? And if, if they do, then we are in agreement, right? We're on the same page. And if they don't, maybe there's some room for discussion there. Maybe there's some compromises that can be made. So I think what, the, what you just said was brilliant. Uh, and um, just uh, one last quick question before we wrap it up here. Um, talking about all these landmarks, I think it'd be kind of funny if you had any personal anecdotes of like people who have like have way exceeded uh any landmarks that you thought were like, or like, oh my God, those are super high. Like I had no idea someone could actually do that much training. Oh my God. <laughs> yes. Uh, college age female athletes, period. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you write them a training program that and you just, it just doesn't make any goddamn sense. You're like, okay, this is like 12 sets of squats in one session. <laughs> yeah. Right. And they just cruise through it. They'll just, they'll do the set, like set, they'll do a set of 10, take like a, a one minute break, like make a joke with their friend and they'll just do another one. Right. Um, the th women tend to be more fatigue resistant, especially when they're not very strong or developed yet. And like co most collegiate age girls aren't, and that's not an insult in any way. It's just the way it is. So you write them these training programs and their MRV is like through the fucking roof. And you're like, this would kill any man that you had to, tr to do this because they're too strong. Right. And it's just funny. So I, I have written programs for people. I actually just wrote uh, an arms delts uh, emphasis mass program for a, a female client of mine. And I had to have my fiance just double check it for me because I was like, dude, this doesn't make any goddamn sense to me. Like on paper, it makes sense. But then you look at it and you're like, this, she's going to die. Her arms are going to fall off. And uh, I just, you sometimes having that female perspective, she, she gave me the nod. She was like, no, it's, it's okay. You can do that. And I was like, all right, good. Uh, but yeah, I'm telling you like young female, like teenage females, their MRVs are through the roof and you got to throw the fucking book at them. It's tough. Yeah. I've been like, all right, six, seven sets. Are we really going to do this? And, but then, then they get it done. Uh, so, so James, I, I think that uh, uh, just because so much of what we do involves, concurrent training as and has been so heavily influenced uh by your guys's uh, volume landmarks and uh of course uh, synthesis on the latest uh meta-analyses in terms of recovery and the like to have you on and and, and bring a lot of this together uh, has been uh, so much fun so uh, thank you so much for taking the time it really has been enjoyable Awesome. It warms my heart to hear you guys uh, paying it forward and finding it useful. So please keep, keep doing a great job and keep helping all your athletes. It makes me feel good. All right, James. Thanks. All right, guys. Thank you so much for having me on.